Amen. Well, it's always good to see a, see a room full. So I'm glad that everybody's here and that everybody's ready to study a little bit. So if you want to go ahead and turn to your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We haven't actually made very much progress so far in what's supposed to be a survey of the book of 1 Timothy. Um, But we're going to try to make some progress today, actually. Uh, We're going to try to actually finish up the first chapter today and and cover at least the main topics of the text. So, last week, um, what we looked at in verses 3 and 4, we saw the fact there that Again, we were noting the heresy that was being taught in the church at Ephesus. We were noting the what even seems to be one of the main reasons that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Timothy in the first place was to address false teaching that was occurring in the church here in Ephesus. And as Paul noted to Timothy what the errors were, um, he described these errors as being strange doctrines that were being taught, he said that there was myths being taught and that there was um, just these endless ge- genealogical connections being made in the, in the law of God that obviously were being misapplied, misused. And I think with the word myths, you can imagine that Paul means that these things were just being made up. So these, these men who I think were obviously teachers in the church, but probably even held uh, eldership roles were teaching heresy. They were abusing the law of God. They were abusing the Word of God and were not using it correctly. They were not handling the Word of God as they should have. They were not rightly dividing. So um, today, like as I said, we want to finish up chapter 1. We're going to look at three, three. I think, what are the three main topics uh, remaining in this chapter. We're going to try to hit them all. I want to cover the first two as quickly as possible so that we can get to the third topic, which really has more to do with the doctrine of the church as far as systematic theology is concerned. So we want to get there and spend some time on that. But first we're going to see how the Apostle Paul um, takes some, some time and, and, and spills some ink over, over the topic of defending the law of God. Defending the law of God. We're going to see how he does that and why. Secondly, we're going to see what, as Paul describes, is giving his own conversion, his own calling to the ministry The Apostle Paul is going to set forth what should be the true motivation for somebody to seek out um, eldership or teaching roles in the church. You need to have a a true godly calling on your life to pursue that. And then lastly, what I really want us to get to is the fact that we're going to see in the end of 1 Timothy chapter 1 is the implementation of church discipline. So I actually want us to see uh, and, and discuss that issue as much as we can, as much as time allows. So firstly, let's see the the fact here that the Apostle Paul is very quick to defend the law of God. As I said, these men were twisting the law of God. These men were abusing the law of God. And the Apostle Paul is going to take um, some verses here to defend the law of God, lest, I I think, lest anybody think that they should, um, as we say, throw the baby out with the bathwater, maybe. Right? If the law of God, people are being confused, the disputes are being raised because of the way these guys are handling the Bible, Paul wants to say that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the Bible because people are abusing it and because um, there's all kinds of problems in the church as a result of false teaching. So in verse 8, 
Um, just because he says people are abusing the law, it doesn't mean it isn't good, because he says in verse 8, but we know that the law is good. See, we know that the law is good, he says, if one uses it lawfully. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, uh, the New Testament, I guess in particular, um, gives many ways in which the even the Old Testament law, even the Mosaic law, the New Testament law, uh, the New Testament in particular gives many ways in which the Old Testament law is still beneficial. The way that the Old Testament law even has, um, as we could say, continued bearing on the life of a Christian. Uh, the law most certainly, um, not in all senses, has, has been done with. But none of the reasons that the New Testament authors give for the, for the benefits of the law are what the false teachers were using it for. You know, the, fault, the, the false teachers were using the law of God, as it seems to me, as like show-and-tell time. See, they were just trying to, to wow people with, as we said, like these hidden meanings behind the genealogies and all kinds of allegorical interpretations. They were just, they were just using the law to, for their own means. So, in what sense is the law still good? Um, in what sense is the law still abiding and useful for the New Covenant Church? Well, the Reformers did some work on this, Calvin in particular, in that they came up with three, what is known as the three uses of the law. Does anybody know what those would have been as they categorized them, the three uses of the law of God? Is anybody familiar with those, those categories that they developed? Calvin in particular did seemingly the most work on that. I'll go through them. Okay, that would be a div- divisions of the law. That's right, they did do that as well. That's also, I think, very helpful distinctions they made. But what I'm talking about is the uses of the law now. In what ways is the... And I'm, I'm specifically referencing the moral law of God in particular, right? We're not talking about the divisions that, that Chris is speaking of where the ceremonial aspects are done away with because of the coming of Christ. We're speaking of the residual necessity and effects and use of the moral laws of God. Robert? <clears throat> make us guilty before the world. Make us known that we need a savior and a guide. That's pretty that's pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty good, right? So first, yes ma'am. Evangelism. Evangelism. I think I think that's really gonna nail the I think that's what Paul specifically is going to talk about. So that's right. We definitely want to use the law on evangelism, no doubt. Um, and we're gonna see why that is, and I think it kind of goes along with what Robert's saying is the first use of the law, Calvin said, he referred to it as the, the pedagogical use of the law. Now He's getting that word pedagogical use, meaning he's getting it from Galatians 3.24, where it says, the law is our tutor, the law is our pedagogos to lead us to Christ. It's our schoolmaster. How does the law do that? It reveals our sin, right? Like Romans 3, the law um, reveals sin. The law shows us our sin. It brings the knowledge of sin. So in that sense, through the law, even now, by showing people God's law, you can show them how they've broken God's law and how they need Christ, how they need a Savior. See, that was what they deemed to be the first use of the law. Now, the Reformers also had another use. The second use of the law is what they described as being the civil use of the law. The civil use of the law, which especially, I think, in their contact context with the more, um, as we could say, maybe not fully theocratic, but just such a close connection be- between law I mean, between the church and the state, they, they really use the civil use of the law, meaning that God's moral law should, should be binding upon society. And 
especially when the state um, can enforce that through punishments, right? You can see God's law having a bearing on the life of, of people, right? Everybody knows, just as we talked about uh, Romans 1, um, Romans chapter 2, the work of the law being at work in everybody's heart and even people who don't have God's law. So in that sense, they feel justified in making a law, do not murder, do not steal, right? Do not lie. These types of things could be um, instituted as, and it's even part of our government, all these, these things. So the civil use of the law, they, they said was a, a continuing use of it. But Calvin said in particular, the third use of the law and most people who are familiar with these categories are, are, are familiar with them because of the disagreements between the Lutherans and the Calvinists. Because Lutherans do not in particular like the third use of the law, but Calvin insisted that this was the most important use of the law. He says that, and they call it the moral or the normative use of the law. This is how God's law reveals to us what is pleasing to God. And, and it reveals to us what God desires from us and how it is that we can please and glorify God the moral or normative use of the law, which is certainly for um, Christian use even in the New Covenant. See? So those are, those are the, the, the ways in which the Reformers came up with uh, abiding uses of the moral law of God. But let's see here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, what the Apostle Paul is going to distinctly uh, teach uh, on why the law is, is still good. If you use it lawfully, he says, verse 9, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. So the law, he's saying, is still good if you use it rightly. The law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. See, I'm seeing his argument here is falling under the category of the pedagogical use of the law. That the law is there to show sinners to show lawless people that they are in fact lawless and sinners for the intention of bringing them to Christ and revealing their sin to them. I think that's, that's where he's going with this argument, which is not the way that these false teachers were using the law. Right? The, 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 these teachers in Ephesus were able to just play with the word of God, just to handle it and, and, and teach fanciful stories, but yet they were, obviously they weren't convicted by the law of God. They weren't convicting other people by the law of God and bringing them to Christ. That's not even what they were using the word of God for. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, it, it seems to literally, beginning here um, in verse 9, in a sense, goes through the entire Ten Commandments. He starts off very generally with the first table of the law, but as you follow this list that he's giving um, of these commandments, you can see that he seems to be uh, uh, closely following the, the teachings of the, the Ten Commandments there. He says, for, he says, the law is for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then he really very clearly follows, I think, from here on out, the Ten Commandments, where he starts with the Fifth Commandment. He says, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for immoral men and homosexuals. Um, there's, that, there's that word arsenikoites again, that's in 1 Corinthians 6, that explicitly denotes homosexuality as being um, sinful. And how sinful? When he's talking about the, 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 the Ten Commandments and he's reference, referencing immorality, sexual immorality, he says homosexuality. It, I see in this list here that he's giving, he seems to be giving the, the worst possible scenario of each of these sins. Right? Because when he said, uh, what did I reference? The fifth 
What's the fifth commandment? To honor your father and mother. Well, what's his example? Killing father and mother, which is the worst possible way, obviously, you can dishonor your father and mother. So he lists under immorality, homosexuality, as being an ex- the, the, the most extreme form of that <coughs> sin. And then he says the law is for kidnappers. That's what the NASB says. Kidnappers. Um, I find it interesting if you've heard Wayne Grudem discuss the translation of this word, um, because, you know, Wayne Grudem did the, he was part of the translation committee for the ESV, the ESV Bible, and he went with a different translation intentionally of this word. Does anybody have ESV? I know you do. Enslavers. 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 Now, Wayne Grudem says that was very intentional um, because King James Version had men stealers. Men stealers. And I've just heard Wayne Grudem discuss why they went with, um, what is it? Enslavers. Enslavers. There's a little blurb at the bottom where he actually expands on What does it say? What does he say there? Maybe he can explain it better than I can. So you have it in yours? Yeah, those who take someone captive in order to sell them into slavery. Right. So even in the word itself, and I forgot to write the word down, but even in the, in the etymology of the word, it's, it's specifically referencing slavery, uh, stealing men for the purpose of slavery, which Grudem says, and, and I think this is, is just so interesting, that because the King James Version, which was used for so long, simply had men stealers, um, the, the, uh, the reality that so many even professing believers, and I would say believers, had slaves, um, he's, he's attributing, he's saying, what if this would have been more explicitly translated Right as to, to to connotate the reality that this is speaking of slavery, that could have changed the whole um, history of slavery in the Americas for sure, and maybe in Britain if it would have been made more explicit. Which I just thought was an interesting discussion of one the translation of one word could have changed the whole course of history as far as that sin, you know, because um, obviously, I mean, you know, as we think about men who did have slaves who we consider great men of God theologically. You know, how were they not confronted with that reality of what was going on there? But maybe if that one word would have been translated a little more explicitly. This thing is very interesting. What did you say the KJV translated that? Men stealers. Men stealers. Men stealers, which, I mean, for whatever purpose you're stealing a man, you would think that would be irrelevant. But here, it seems to be stealing men specifically for the purpose um, of enslaving them, which is an unrighteous slavery, of course. You know, yes, sir? The, the, the word that it's used there too also um, has the idea of selling slaves, selling slaves, selling slaves. So like the B tag says, uh, slave dealer. Yeah. So yeah. Definitely, slavery is being human trafficking in our. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that that's interesting very much. So it says he goes on the laws for liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, sound teaching. So this is what the law. Of, of God does this is a primary use for the for the law of God is to expose man's sinfulness. So Paul goes through this litany, this 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 drawn out list of sins and, and all of these requirements that God's law has and all of God's standards. But I think verse eleven is very interesting as Paul goes on um, in his discussion here to say that all of these laws, all of these requirements, all these thou shalt not that God has in his law, verse 11 says, is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with, with which I have been entrusted. Now, I think that's significant because what he's saying is the law of God, 
all of God's righteous requirements, the listing of God's requirements, the, the, the exposing of man's sin, is all part of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I thought that was relevant just for, um, as Marlene said, for our evangelism. See how the law of God is in fact part of the glorious gospel of our blessed God? And so um, I know that the world and even a lot of professing Christians, when we preach the law of God, when we expose man's sin, they're very quick to say that's unloving. They're very quick to say that's judgmental. But the Apostle Paul says this is part of the glorious gospel of our blessed God. Mm-hmm. See, so um, I, I think that's very relevant for especially the way we like to present the gospel and lead people to the Savior. Um, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying we should be using God's law for, and it has that abiding purpose. See, so um, let's, let's move on the sec- to the second point. Again, I want to hit this one quickly um, because now the Apostle Paul... He's now turning to his own conversion and his own calling to the ministry as an example, really, of what should be the true motivation, what should be the true reasons for a man to seek the ministry and to seek to handle the law of God and the word of God. And as we're going to see, the proper uh, foundation for this is to have a humble, to have a, a thankful spirit for the grace of God, as opposed to the conceited, prideful hearts that these false teachers had. In verse 12, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 15 is important. He says, it is a trustworthy statement. There's five of these trustworthy statements in 1 Timothy. He says, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. See, the Apostle Paul has, in fact, been humbled by the law of God. The Apostle Paul has been humbled by his breaking of God's laws. And he is um, graciously and thankfully because of his salvation and the outworking of that thankfulness is his, his ministry work. That's his motivation for his ministry and his calling is his salvation. He's so grateful to God that being an, an ignorant, um, even as he says, the worst sinner of all, God saved him. And because God saved him, his life is now Christ's. His life is now an offering to Jesus Christ in service in the ministry. So I think he even gets into all that specifically because... Um, he, he's showing his, his reason for the ministry and for handling the word of God as opposed to the false teachers. The false teachers have prideful, um, arrogant, self-motivated um, reasons for teaching the word of God. But the Apostle Paul's doing it because God saved him. See? And notice verse 16 because for me this is, this is interesting to me because the Apostle Paul apparently seems to know why he in particular was saved. I know I've always wondered why God saved me. You know, we believe that the Bible teaches that man is saved uh, not based on anything in and of ourselves, nothing that God foresaw in us. We believe in unconditional election. So why did God save me and not my brother? We were both raised in the same household, same Bible, same teaching, same church, same sins. Why did God save me and not my brother? I've always wondered that. I've always wondered if God's actually going to tell us why he saved us 
in particular versus, you know, somebody else. But here the Apostle Paul seems to know why God saved him in particular. Because in verse 15 he had just said he's the worst sinner of all. And if you know anything about the life of the Apostle Paul from the book of Acts in particular and what he says about himself in Corinthians, you know that he was in fact a dreadful, dreadful man. He persecuted the church of God. He was a violent aggressor. He was a blasphemer. All of these things that he says about himself is evidenced in the book of Acts. And he says he was the worst sinner of all. But there's a reason that God saved him in particular. Verse 16 says, Yet for this reason, because he was the worst sinner of all, yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Isn't that interesting? That the worst sinner of all was saved to be an example. The Apostle Paul is saying, if God saves the worst person in the world, there's no one who is without excuse not to, be, to come to Christ and accept his sacrifice. You see, unless you are you know, murdering Christians on a daily basis, right? unless that's what you do, you cannot say you are too sinful to be saved. God saved the Apostle Paul. He can save anyone. See, so his, his whole life is an, is an example of God's willingness to be patient and to save sinners. Um, that it really takes any excuse away. And I have actually heard people say, I, I've gone too far. I've, I've been too sinful. I've, you know, I've lived in sin for too long. I'm, I'm beyond being saved. Well, the Apostle Paul's salvation is there. Paul's saying for the purpose of um, taking that excuse away. In a sense, God saved the worst sinner. God will save them. See, so I thought that was very interesting. And as Paul thinks about this, as Paul just um, is, is going through in his mind his own salvation, look what it leads him to in verse 17. Um, all of this leads to, to worship for the Apostle Paul. He breaks out into to doxology in verse 17. He says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul had a, the true heart of a, of a godly minister, one who serves God out of a total gratitude for his salvation and, and as we see in his doxology, for, for God's glory alone, not for his own glory like these, the false teachers in, in Ephesus. So um, we're, doing, we're doing good on time. Now I want us to, to spend the rest of the time on this issue that uh, the Apostle Paul addresses here in the last three verses. Of chapter 1. Um, Paul, in a sense now, uh, after exploding into doxology, he now gets back to business in a sense. He gets back to business and now he's, he's back to encouraging Timothy to get back to the duty and to the calling and to the reason that the Apostle Paul has put him in Ephesus. Um, he has a work to do. He has a work to do in this church. Verse 18 says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Now, I thought that language was interesting. Why would the Apostle Paul describe um, Timothy's calling to oversee this church as fighting a fight? Right? It seemed to me that the false teachers were, were rather enjoying themselves. I mean, it seems like they had time to come up with all these fanciful genealogical connections. It seemed like they were living it up. Paul sends Timothy here and says, get ready to fight the good fight. Isn't that an interesting description of um, pastoral ministry? Fighting a fight? And you can only imagine, you know, First Timothy tells us that Timothy was young. And Paul's putting him right in the mix with all these 
probably established leaders in the church, these older men, I'm sure, um, and Paul's putting them right in the mix, even over them with this, this apostolic representation that he has to try to correct the error of these older men. That's going to be a fight. Um, it's, and as we'll see, it sure enough obviously turns into one. But overseeing a church, it, it can be a fight. Even the Christian life in general, isn't that how the Apostle Paul describes the Christian life in general as a fight? Um, a fight that you can never give up on, no matter how difficult it gets. Um, but it's interesting. Fight the good fight, he tells him. Even in apostolically planted churches, there's sin that's going to be there, and there's sin that needs to be dealt with um, through the difficult process of church discipline. It's a difficult process. Um, Paul says, keep, the, uh, keep fighting. Verse 19, fight to keep the faith in a good conscience, he says. And then he goes on to say, uh, keeping faith in good conscience, with some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul says, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So when Paul started off his letter, right, he mentioned some men were teaching strange things. Certain men have gone astray. But now he's not speaking in generalities anymore. He's literally naming these men to Timothy. Hymenaeus and Alexander, he says. Um, these men who were obviously guilty of some, some sort of false teaching that the Apostle Paul considered blasphemous. So this was not just a, you know, a difference of opinion on the mode of, bla- of baptism or you know, some aspect of eschatology. The Apostle Paul is saying their, their teaching is blasphemous. Blasphemous against Christ. And um, actually in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, Paul mentions Hymenaeus again. If you want to, I mean, you can turn there if you want, but there he mentions more specifically the error of this man, Hymenaeus, or maybe what his heresy developed into. But Hymenaeus was saying that the resurrection had already taken place. Paul says that was his error. He taught that the resurrection had already taken place, um, which is an interesting, interesting teaching. I'm not too sure where all that spider, you know, what all that would end up affecting. Yes, sir. Uh, I was just. Uh going through what I think is an extremely parallel passage Mm -hmm. in Ephesians 6 because it not only talks about the fight or the struggle Mm. that we go through and how to defend it. Mm. Uh, It says that obviously it's not against flesh and blood. It's against the forces uh, of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then in verse 14, it goes on to say, the way you combat this is gird your loins with truth. Mm. Therefore, being backed up, obviously, by the Word of God. Amen. 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 Yeah, that's what the men had strayed from. Obviously, that's what the Timothy was to bring them back to, was the Word of God. I mean, well, I was just going to point out um, the, the heresy of believing that the resurrection already happened. Yeah. Why that could be relevant for us, you know, by extension, I think is the principle there is having an over-realized eschatology. Mm. You know, I mean, this idea that we are more um, along the redemptive line than we are, you know. I think some eschatological camps could be guilty of that. Right. You know, thinking that we have already, you know, um, been glorified or that we've already achieved the kingdom of God. You know, the kingdom of God is already here in fullness. You know what I mean? We have to be careful of that. You know, I'm just thinking that's a, right. that's a big one. You know, not to go controversial, but... Yeah, I mean, so even some of those views that yeah we'd say are overrealized eschatology, and some people say we have that overrealized eschatology, right? So 
at some point, this had become blasphemous, right? So we wouldn't necessarily put somebody out of the church for having an over-realized eschatology, depending on, I guess, how far they went with it. I guess you can go far enough to where it's blasphemous. Like um, preterism. Like what? Full preterism, yeah. right? Where you're saying all of the all of the prophecies concerning the second coming, which sounds probably like almost where these guys were headed, that all of the, the, the promises of Christ's return had already happened. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, so where are we at now? If, if the second coming has already happened and everything with it, that, that's strange. That's a strange doctrine, isn't it? Is that, is that, is that, so is that, would that be in full line with like postmillennialism? Uh, well, no, they wouldn't be full preterists. They wouldn't be full preterists, which has historically been considered heretical. Um, but they're saying we're moving in that direction as far as the kingdom of God being realized here and now. That's the direction they're going, but they wouldn't say we're there by any means. It's a partial preterism. Partial preterism, Partial. yeah. Right. 70 AD fulfillments, stuff like that, um, is definitely where they would be. So, so what does Paul mean then, right? Paul's, Paul, these guys are teaching heresy in the church. Paul says with Hymenaeus and Alexander that he handed them over to Satan. Paul says he handed these men over to Satan. What does that mean? Yes, sir. Much like uh, the man caught in adultery in First Corinthians uh, five, where they were uh, disciplined out of the church. That's a good reference, bro. Excommunicated. I think that's exactly what it means. And I think 1 Corinthians 5 uh, that Brother Robert mentioned really helps us with that. Because here, in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, Paul uses the exact same language, the exact same words. He delivered somebody over to Satan. And he says um, in verse 5, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. But what's so significant about it, he uses the same language, but as you read on, as you finish chapter 5, you see that what he's saying is that this, this immoral man was put out of the church. And he's even telling the church to um, acknowledge that and to put this man, obviously unrepentant man, out of the church, which I think is what correlates with the meaning, handed him over to Satan, means to put him out of the church. Put him out of the church, which... Isn't that an interesting description that Paul gives? He could have said, to these men, I put them out of the church. But he uses the words, I handed them over to Satan. That's, to me, that's, wow, that's what being put outside the church is, is being given to Satan. See, so, so you're, put out, you're, you're, you're taken away from all the graces of the church, all the fellowship of the church, all the preaching, all the love of the people of God. To be put out of the church is to be given over to Satan. Shouldn't. Shouldn't that description elevate our view of the church and what we have right like right now? Being protected from Satan, being protected from the enemy by all the graces that God gives us in the church. Paul says to be put out of the church is to be given to Satan. That's terrifying language. Yes, sir. Uh, especially in a time where, where you go more with persecution. I mean, you know, in, in this area, for example, you know, a lot of places that, that call themselves churches that people have an option of going to, where if they were sent out of one, they just didn't seriously go half a block down the street to the next one. Right. Um, where in this place, it was really is dealing with the, uh, the the body of Christ and being sent away from that, which which has even more so the implication. Yeah, amen. Yeah. I was listening to uh, Grudem's audio as he teaches through Systematic on this topic this week, and he was talking about that that problem that seems to be so prevalent in evangelicalism these days of how... So say, say we church discipline somebody, we put them out of the church, well, they just go to the church down the street. Mm-hmm. But Grudem says, don't be deceived. The Lord is not blessing you, right? The Lord is not 
honored by your just um, trying to bypass the discipline of his church. Right? So you can run, but you can't hide, in other words. Uh, you could go to another church, another church could accept you without asking questions. Um, we try to, in our membership meetings, we're very um, careful about finding out where people have come from, why they are here, why they left, because we need to make sure that that's not happening. We don't want to be responsible for that and, and take part in that. So, um, yeah, Keith, did you ask something? Yeah, I yeah. also want to um, show how it, it indicates God's mercy in this also. Poor brother, it does. It really shows the mercy of God bringing that brother back. Amen. At all costs. Mm-hmm. At all costs. He is born again. Amen. As as hard as church discipline seems and as harsh as it seems, what's the main purpose? Restoration. I mean back in our turn back to First Timothy and see that. I was going to point this out. Even in this. So they'll learn. First Timothy chapter one, verse twenty, it says, He handed them over to Satan for a purpose. Paul was trying to teach them something. It says, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. See that? He had a, he had a, a hope. He was holding out hope that this would teach them a lesson. That they would be taught not to blaspheme. That the, that the collective voice of the church would, um, and being handed over to the world, would, would um, awaken them, would bring them to their senses in a sense. And they'd want to come back and they'd repent and be willing to do that. That's what the Apostle Paul's Hope was for even the most extreme form, the the most the, the last step in church discipline, excommunication. Even that is is for the purpose of um, teaching them a lesson and restoring them back to the fellowship. See, that's that's always important to remember as it comes to church discipline. I know Burkhoff in his systematic on on uh, church discipline, he he gives. Um, he says that the primary purpose of church discipline is for the holiness of Christ's bride. And the subservient purpose to that main purpose is for the individual edification of those who are being taught lessons. So that's true, of course, you know. Um, the holiness of, of, the, of Christ's bride is, is why Christ is doing this, but we gain. We gain out of being disciplined. Yes, sir. Okay. I was just going to uh, say that... Um, shows you how essential church discipline is to a true church. Mm. You know what I mean? That it really brings into question, like, if you're not engaged in church discipline, is that really a church? Mm-hmm. You know I mean? Because a church is an institution that moves out of the authority of Christ. Mm-hmm. But if you're not willing to do that, really brings into question, is that even a church? Yeah. Or is that just a religious club? You know what I mean? Um, or something else? Yeah. This is a very essential mark to a, a, a true church. Mm-hmm. Let me get Keith. Yeah, it all, I think it also brings in the, the, the fear of God in the body, within the body, to see such a thing happen. Yeah. He thinks twice about going down there. Yeah. Just, just even to top it off, the, the, the reverence for the holy God that you say that you worship and to pretend uh, as if it is not happening or pretend that it's less than it is, um, it's, it's catastrophic body. It's poison. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have a true church, right, if you don't practice church discipline, and that church will not last anyways. Yeah. Right, a little leaven leavens the whole thing. Eventually, yeah. if you don't leg- regulate false teaching, if you don't regulate immorality, if you don't regulate blasphemy, whatever the sin is, that church will not last. That church, you know, even if it started off as one, is, is destined for, 
for division and apostasy. all kinds of apostasy. Yes, sir. Uh, I think it's interesting when you really think about the implications of this truth, what a high view he has of the local church and of the fellowship, and that somehow removing them is going to cause them to repent. But if somebody is truly born again, the idea of removing them from fellowship should be basically the worst of all punishments, essentially. Right. So it's it's the idea of taking them away. So I guess just a, such a high view of, of, of the intimacy and the fellowship within the local church that if you actually remove somebody from that, that would be the thing that caused them. You, like no other punishment involved, just we're going to get you out of fellowship altogether. And that should cause somebody that's born again to be desperate to be back in at all costs, whatever they have to give up in light of their sin. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we can all attest that. I know I thought many times just that, just of the reality of, you know, sometimes you wonder, your mind can think, well, what would it be like to go back to the world, right? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I, I can tell you I've thought about that. I've, I've thought, you know, um, what if I went back to those those sins that I used to do? What if I just turned and went to those I can tell you without a shadow of doubt that I would not enjoy any of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I have so been enlightened, I've so tasted that I could not enjoy those sins any longer. I was able to do them because of the suppression of truth and because of the, you know, the veil and because of my hardness of heart. But, I mean, there is no going back to those things. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't last a week. I mean, it would be terrible, <laughs> you know? Teach you not to blaspheme. That will teach you not to blaspheme, you know, because the world is a, is a liar and... Satan is a liar, and once you've known the truth, going back to a lie is just, that's not going to fulfill. That's, but that's not going to work. the worst punishment possible, basically. Yeah. Is removing from the intimacy of the local church. Yeah, that's right. That is death. Yeah. Right under the old covenant, physical death. Under the new covenant, being put out of the church, death. I mean, yes, sir. Can I just bring up another issue? Uh, sure. Just like this, you know, another, another aspect of this that is assumed in the doctrine of church discipline is cooperation between like-minded churches. Hmm. I mean, I just—I recently just got a—I uh, just recently got a contacted by a pastor that wanted to know about an individual that I was a part of uh, engaging in, in his excommunication hmm. many years ago, and it just shows you that that which was never reconciled. It just shows you, it follows you, mm-hmm. and you may, like um, like somebody mentioned, you know, you may want to just sneak in the back door of another church, but if it's a true church, as I believe this other church to be, um, they won't just allow that to take place, you know what I mean, but they will, you know, uh, they will carefully research everything, and as the Bible says, you know, the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything will be established, so just doing due diligence to make sure that we're operating properly, like you mentioned, you know, we don't allow people into our church that are currently under church discipline somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they say, oh, don't worry about that. We'll, we'll just, you know, we'll forget about all that. You just come on in, brother. Right. No, absolutely not. So right. it assumes cooperation between like-minded churches. Do you guys look into, like, our old churches whenever, before we become members here? If we need to. Yeah. You know, so yeah, if we need to. I mean, if you left in a disorderly fashion yeah. or part of your testimony is that you have a falling out with the leadership or something like that, you know, I guess part of that is, you know, it kind of, you know, part of that sometimes requires a, 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 like a letter of transfer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, sometimes unfortunate folks come from churches that we don't even consider churches. So at that point, you know, some people come to the light and they want to come here. It's okay, well, you know, we don't bother with, you know, We with know that. your grievance. We know your grievance, yeah. So that, that, that happens too. Yes, sir. Just that I think that, that I think that that also kind of speaks to the isolation of people who don't go to churches at all. Mm-hmm. To know that we put people out of churches mm-hmm. because of 
right, the destruction of the flesh, teaching not to blaspheme, and then it should really speak to why someone should be out of the church in the first place, and why those who are isolated should be in the church, right. and, and kind of how, how terrible it is not to be a part of a church or a member of a church mm-hmm. somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yes, sir. Last one. Uh, just, I think it's important to touch on um, that being put out is the most loving possible thing that can be done, too. Mm-hmm. It's not done out of anything ultimately other than love with the hope of restoration for these folks. Yep. Yeah, that's right. No doubt about that. Um, so I, it's interesting how much you see in just this one verse. You see the necessity of church discipline. You see them, you see them acting it out. Um, you see the, the motivation, as Brother Ryan's saying, that, that they would be um, lovingly brought back in. You see the, the terror of being put outside, which is being given over to Satan. You see all those things in one verse, apparently. Um, I wanted to turn, but we don't have time. I wanted to turn to where, where is the most... Um, fullest description given of church discipline from a very didactic standpoint. Matthew 18. So if you want to look further into that, uh, I would say the only aspect that I even wanted to go there to point out to us uh, that, that maybe you don't get from this text that you get in Matthew 18, just another principle behind church discipline is the principle that whenever confronting sin, um, the, um, the, the exposure of the sin... The exposure of the problem is always to be kept as small as possible throughout the whole process. Like that's what church discipline is intended to do. It's if your brother or sister sins, you go to them privately. It says, right? If 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 they repent, if they listen to you, you've won your brother and, and it's over. If they don't, take two or three with you. You know, a little more people are now exposed to the issue, but you're still doing your best to keep it small. If they don't believe that, then that's when you go to the church, which I obviously think is um, through the eldership, through the leadership of the church, you know, that, that sin then has to be exposed to. And if they don't listen to the church, and the church as a, as a whole puts that person out, hoping that they'll, they'll repent. And all of that, if you, if you look at Matthew 18 at the end, you know, is done because of the authority of Christ that he gives to his church to do those things where two or three are gathered, right? Whatever you loose on earth has been loosed in heaven. All of that... Um, all of that theology behind that, but this is Christ's church, and Christ has given his authority to his church, and these are things that are done for the good of Christ's church as a whole and for the individuals as well. It's all done for, for, the, for the, uh, the hope of restoration and, and holiness throughout. So that's good. We did. We finished chapter one. We did it. So let's pray really quickly, and then we'll go to service. Well, Father, Father, we are... Um, we are privileged, Lord, to be, to have received the grace of, of Christ, to be sanctified and set apart and to be um, moving in a good direction, Lord, towards holiness, that we are here in fellowship and in community with the people of God, Lord, and that you've protected us from ourselves and our sin. Lord, please keep us. Lord, please preserve us. Lord, uh, we fear being given over to Satan even for a time, Lord. Please, please guard your church, Lord. Guard Heritage Grace. Let us, let us be a holy people, a set-apart people for your namesake, Lord. And give us the, the courage, Lord. Help us to fight the good fight, Lord, when sin does rear its ugly head, Lord. And give us discernment, Lord. Give us love. Give us, as Galatians says, give us gentleness. Give us a spirit of gentleness when it's time to lovingly speak to a brother or sister about sin, Lord, and let that, 
Let that rebuke, Lord. Let that exhortation be received, Lord, for your namesake primarily and for our good as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, Brad. Amen. Well, thank you.